if you could talk a little bit about uh, the Stonewall riots and what that was like. You know what? It was scary. Uh, it was something that happened all the time. The police coming and shutting down bars all across the United States, not just New York, everywhere. They come, take that nice stick, hit the door jam, the lights come on, and you streamed out. That's the routine, that's what you did. Everybody knew it. Uh, they checked for ID to see if minors were in the bar and stuff like that. And the routine started, but nobody budged. Everybody just looked at one another. And when we got our nerves together and everybody decided, okay, we're gonna go out, a fight ensued. And all of this crap that I've been hearing over the years is, oh, someone threw a shoe, someone threw a Molotov cocktail, someone did something else, someone slugged a car. I don't know what happened. All mm-hmm. I know is a fight ensued. Mm-hmm. And we were kicking their ass. So much so, they backed into the bar mm-hmm. for protection. And then the next thing you knew, the riot squad was there. Then then it was on. Welcome back to Making Queer History Public from the American Social History Project at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Making Queer History Public examines the efforts of queer and trans historians, archivists, activists, and educators to preserve LGBTQ history and make it accessible to the public. I'm Danielle Bennett, a PhD student at the CUNY Graduate Center. I'm Annie Volk, the Executive Director of the American Social History Project. Hello to you, Danielle, and to our listeners. In our last episode, we spoke to archivist and memory worker Stephen Fullwood. Fullwood established the In the Life Archive, which collects materials related to queer black life and is based at the Schomburg Center in Harlem, a neighborhood that has historically been home to many black LGBTQ plus people. For this episode, we're looking at a project devoted to preserving the experiences of members of New York City's trans communities through oral history interviews. The clip you just heard came from a 2017 interview with the legendary Miss Major, where she describes what she remembers about the start of the 1969 uprising at the Stonewall Inn. It's one of hundreds of interviews collected by the New York City Trans Oral History Project. So many of the queer and trans-led projects we're looking at in this podcast attempt to rethink how the histories of LGBTQ people can be preserved to be more legible and accessible. Last time, we saw how black and queer history is being preserved in the community-centered archives of the Schoenberg Center. Today, we'll learn more about how the New York City Trans Oral History Project rejects more conventional institutional models that they feel don't take into account the lived realities of many trans folks. Their project seeks to create an alternative way of preserving trans history by and for trans people. For this episode, I spoke with Michelle Esther O'Brien, the former coordinator of the New York City Trans Oral History Project. Michelle is a writer, archivist, and scholar who studies LGBTQ social movements. Michelle describes how the collective that runs the project has developed a unique copyright and usage policy that takes into account the precarious position of many trans people. Sounds great, let's roll the tape. I go by Michelle, or Michelle Esther O'Brien, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm a psychoanalyst, information uh, writer, political theorist, a teacher, and an oral historian living in Brooklyn, New York. 
The New York City Trans Oral History Project is sort of two things. We are a collaboration between an independent collective and the New York Public Library. Um, we The collective started about six years ago, uh, coming out of conversations with staff at the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, uh, a center for low-income legal, service, legal services for low-income transgender people in New York City. And so many people had stories about their lives, extraordinary stories in many ways, that um, weren't getting documented. And there was a lot of interest in trying to collect an archive of trans people talking about our lives in New York. There are a handful of other trans oral history projects around the U.S. that have come and gone, some of which are still active. And uh, so for a couple of years, they, the collective did research and sort of came up with a platform and approach to oral history and a way of thinking about access to oral history. Did a lot of thinking about the problems with how oral history is often done with protocols around um, permissions uh, and copyright and access that we were quite critical of. And then the live or the collective formed a collaboration with what was then the Community Oral History Project at the New York Public Library. And uh, out of those dialogues sort of emerged this plan around uh, how to do the archive uh, rooted at the library, hosted by the library. In terms of your involvement, what made you interested in working with the collective and coming on as its coordinator? Well, I'm, I'm trans. I'm a trans woman. I came out as a woman uh, a while ago, about 20 uh, some years ago. And at the time when I came out, I was 21 or 22. And uh, the landscape of the trans scene that I entered was quite sparse. And moving to Philadelphia, I was able to find my way into doing um, some really very exciting cross-racial and cross-class uh, trans organizing in Philadelphia around access to healthcare and poverty services and against police violence. And I um, continued some elements of that work when I moved to New York. I worked in HIV and AIDS services for many, many years. And then I ended up in a PhD program where I wrote a dissertation that I recently defended on sort of how capitalism shapes queer organizing in New York. So I interviewed a lot of people who are movement actors and incorporated some of that into my dissertation research and published a couple of papers. Through my own personal analysis, was already aware of the very transformative and kind of radical power of being able to speak freely about oneself and one's life and one's thoughts. And what I discovered in doing oral history work that I had only the vaguest intuition about before was that there is equally transformative power in listening. And that sitting and listening to people speaking freely, saying things that are unexpected, making sense of their lives is a really profoundly healing and transformative and incredible experience. Since the 1960s, oral historians have talked about the potential of oral history around social change, but to me that's always felt like something that's been very aspirational and idealistic, and that there hasn't necessarily been a lot more thinking about how does that actually happen. So Michelle, what role do you think oral history can actually play in social change? One is our belief, our analysis, our understanding that having these stories out there has a transformative impact, that we are at a particular historical juncture right now where multi-class, multi-racial stories of trans life with all their richness and contradictions have a very powerful 
potential effect in transforming public consciousness, community dynamics, the self-construction of history, um, ongoing struggles that are happening around trans life. We talked to trans people scattered around the country who were like, I was really moved listening to the interviews. It had a big impact on me. We talked to academics, many academics, I think at least a dozen at this point who have used the interviews in their teaching. And then there are just a lot of random people who listen to our interviews who I think for whom trans people are a kind of abstract question and approached through abstract terms. And yet trans people are in the news a lot these days. And our archive provides a means of people to be like, oh, these are interesting people who have all sorts of different things to say, kind of like I have to say. And, you know, this sort of process of getting to know people and, and our lives. And that I think that that is really very powerful. And so I have a lot more to say about why, at this historical juncture, trans stories in particular are so powerful and so needed and so relevant. And I think that that has to do with changes that are happening around gender, changes that are happening around racial capitalism, changes that are happening around sort of right-wing ideology. And, you know, there's there, there are these factors that come together that make these stories powerful. So that's one mechanism is, do we concrete, con concretely contribute to policy campaigns? And there it's aspirational. The second mechanism is, what do having these stories in the world accomplish? And there are, we speculate, we imagine based on our analyses. And then the third dimension is, what, how does the experience of telling one's story have a transformative impact on the person and their immediate communities? And that I think is real. Like that is very interesting. There's, I think something very powerful that happens to people when they're able to really share all their richness and have that be held and acknowledged and recognized and heard. And that that, um, that, that shifts how people relate to their own past. It helps people integrate their past into their present. It helps people be able to imagine and think about the future. It helps people in their own healing processes. And I mean, it's not magic, but I think it that it has um, ramifications for collective social struggle. Well, the fact that you have 190 plus interviews suggests that people want to be part of this process and that they see that they're either personally able to benefit or that they can contribute something larger than that. So Michelle, how did you go from two interviews to more than 190 in just five years? We are motivated by a kind of mission, a kind of political analysis about the role of trans stories in challenging white supremacy, gender violence, policing, poverty, welfare austerity. Like we have a sort of political vision of what we think trans stories can accomplish and, um, and a sort of belief that trans stories have this efficacy, this power in being able to do so. And the sense of shared mission, even if they haven't read our mission statement, even if we haven't flushed out our vision, even if we haven't done any political education, like there's already some level of a shared sense of mission that is felt and recognized as we try to recruit narrators. Trans people are actually quite overstudied by medical researchers and to some extent by legal researchers. Like 
HIV rates alone in trans communities kind of assure that there is this whole apparatus trying to analyze the behavior of trans people and their how that how does that is tied up with their life conditions that is is quite awful like many trans people have been interviewed many many times by various kinds of researchers and get nothing out of it and yet people were quite interested in sharing very vulnerable material in a very public forum much more interested than they were talking to a researcher that was going to pay them $40. Um, and I think that's about shared mission. I think that's about people believing their stories have a political efficacy that is the same belief that motivates us to sit and listen to them. We have put a lot of work into recruiting and developing sort of core interviewers in the collective or immediately adjacent to the collective. We've done organizational partnerships with a number of usually Black-led, POC-led, migrant-led trans organizing projects in New York City to interview their members. We, uh, we were a very underfunded project, and the library certainly doesn't put any money to this, but we have sort of scraped together whatever money we can to compensate uh, a very small fraction of our narrators, but usually the narrators that are recruited through these organizational collaborations. Um, we spend a lot of time showing up at public forums and trying to give charismatic speeches and encourage anyone in the audience if they want to be interviewed. We hand out flyers at trans protests. This is a really ambitious project, Annie. They're starting with the belief in the power of people and their stories to affect change, but they're also aware of this baggage of feeling like trans people and their stories are often misused by people in power. So the collective keeps control of the stories by making this a kind of labor of love within the community, though one where, contrary to how a lot of institutional oral history projects are run, one where they sometimes even compensate the interviewees. Most oral historians don't pay interviewees to participate in projects like this because they want people to give their stories willingly, not because of the money they get paid to say something. But the Trans Oral History Project is looking at this from a different perspective. They're saying, listen, your financial situation might be precarious. Taking the time to do something like this might not be a top priority for you but your story matters, so let's figure out the best way to help you tell it. And this ethos, one that emphasizes getting trans experiences recorded and accessible, is also reflected in the way they have chosen to copyright their recordings. Instead of the project owning the materials, they don't own the copyright, and this allows anyone in the world to access, share, and use them as long as they give them credit. So let's hear more about how that works. Could you say more about how this project has been set up in a way that is intentionally trying to avoid or to not replicate some of the problems and constraints that define more institutionally based oral history projects? How is the trans oral history projects approach different? So our interviews are posted Creative Commons 1, which means they can be used for any, by any person for any purpose um without restrictions and we did that very deliberately um we uh, there are some ways that we uh that i think we have some criticisms of creative commons like being able to remove interviews from the archive is really important to us being able to change someone's name and the metadata is important to us and creative commons doesn't 
protect people in this way. Um, and certainly there are obvious risks. I mean, there are lots of transphobic people out there. Uh, people share a lot of different kinds of material in the archive. Hypothetically, somebody could capitalize off of it, um, make money off of other people's interviews, use them maliciously as part of harassment or personal attacks. I think we've been very lucky that that has not happened in the five years of the archive. Um, there many people have used the interviews, but whenever they've used them for any sort of public purpose that we know of, they have reached out to us and asked for permission, even though it's not legally required. And we put them in touch with the narrators. And if the narrators are findable, we usually make sure they get some money out of it. And that is not part of the sort of legal apparatus of it, but it's an ethical commitment we have to move as much money as we can to narrators and to um, throughout the project. So when people get quoted in books and articles and things like that, they, they certainly do so, they give permission and in many cases they get paid. Um, but that's not a legal requirement. Our sense was that the protection, so the standard um, kind of ethical framework in oral history world is that somebody should be able to own or co-own their interviews so that it's never used for any purpose without their permission. So the more hoops you create to be able to use the interviews, the more selective, educated, equipped, and resourced the people are who are going to be able to jump through those hoops. And that that's, that's a huge problem. That means the interviews get used exclusively by elitist, top-down, malicious, racist institutions and are not being used by community-based projects, by artists, by activists who are not equipped to jump through all those hoops. And that all these protocols are in place to protect institutions at the expense of interviews actually being useful and then this is presented in the rhetoric of protective protection of human subjects, of interview narrators, and that that's a whole way of thinking that's become very institutionalized, that actually trans people got no say in its design at all. And it's got no say in how that's enforced, how that's reproduced. I mean, like, obviously our narrators don't want to be exploited, they don't want to be taken advantage of, they don't want their interviews used maliciously. And we were like, you have to have protections. Who owns the interviews? And we're like, they're public. <laughs> they are owned by the public, you know? And like, that's, uh, that's very hard for trained oral historians and trained archivists and trained academic researchers to get their heads around. It kind of freaks people out. And it freaks people out, I would say, for the wrong reasons. It freaks people out for the wrong reasons. I love that. I think it really helps bring us back to the idea that Michelle started with, that the collective started off wanting to preserve the stories of the trans community. So they sort of say, who cares about the copyright or about the ways that institutions have created this framework to protect the collected work once it is recorded? We care about the story because it belongs to a person. And once they've decided to share it with the world, how can it be owned by anyone else? Yes, certainly. You can see how they came to this decision for their purposes. At the same time, as an oral historian, I can see how those protections are important to hang on to in certain scenarios. I asked Michelle about whether there are any drawbacks to this more open model. Michelle, how do you think that approach shapes the interviews themselves? So it's obviously something that is shaping people's sense of wanting to participate in this project, 
But what about the content of the interviews, the fact that they're open, publicly accessible in this way? How does that shape what people actually talk about? Well, it certainly shapes it. I um, People talk about criminal activities a lot less than they might uh, in other contexts, although uh, there have been a number of fairly public oral history scandals around people talking about criminal activities and there being all these assurances of protection that the institution then is unwilling to actually deliver and provide. So I'm not convinced that sort of a much higher level of protection would actually protect anybody. So we have way more people talking about their former career sex workers than we have people talking about their current career sex workers. Although I know for sure we've interviewed tons of current sex workers, they remain vague about their current work. So our descriptions of sex work are almost always in the past tense. Um, people don't talk about drug dealing so much. People don't talk about theft and robbery so much. Um, and then uh, I sort of, I remind people that the interviews are public and all narrators do and to be mindful of what you talk about. And I think there's a lot of intra-nacing conflicts within trans communities uh, sort of drama and beef and rivalries, some of which have a real historical and political importance to them, you know, that are questions about control over resources, questions about sort of how big historical falling outs between different community or political factions continue to play out in the present. And occasionally people just dive right into this stuff. And these are all calculations that people need to make. And we we encourage people to make them thoughtfully and to make them deliberately and believe that people themselves are the best equipped to make those assessments about what they want to share. And that we're there to ask open questions. And if we get a sense someone doesn't want to pursue a line of discussion, then to not do so. Um, and we, you know, regardless the level of protection, that sort of risk assessment process needs to happen. Uh, and we, we think that communities themselves are ultimately the best equipped to assess what is wise and protective and valuable for them to engage in. Given their openness and availability, how are these interviews actually being used? We're really very interested in interviews getting outside of the sort of rote narratives and rote topics of trans life. Like, oh, when did you find out you were trans? When did you transition? How are you treated? You know, those are not the kind of questions that we, that people ask so much. Like uh, those, some of those topics come up sometimes, other times they don't. But like I, for example, my, one of my published papers that uses the oral histories is about work. It's about the kind of jobs people had and like how they were treated at work and how they got their jobs and what they thought about their jobs and where were there other trans people in those jobs and how did that happen? And that's, you know, a sort of whole world of labor sociology around queer work and um, and there's a lot to say about it. But like, that's not a part of what anyone is paid to research about trans people, you know, like there is very little about trans people's experiences at work outside of this incredibly narrow set of questions around legally barred forms of discrimination. I, and we tell people like we have no idea what researchers might be interested in. 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We have no idea what community activists are going to be interested in. We have no idea what artists are going to be interested in. And so when you talk, talk about what you're excited about talking about. And probably someone out there will be excited about listening about it. That's so fascinating. Many of the people who've been interviewed 
it looks like they are fairly young. I mean, it seems to me like you might also be getting real insight into some generational stories here. I would say one of the historical things that's interesting about our moment is we are at the precise historical juncture where people who lived through the uprisings in the late 1960s and 1970s, the huge changes in trans life in the 1970s and 1980s, the sort of depth and sophistication of the Black trans dance communities of the 1980s and 1990s, like the welfare austerity of the 80s and 90s, like people that lived through all that are still around to be able to talk about it. Some of them are still around. And then on the other hand, you know, there's been a gigantic generational shift in young people identifying as trans. And like you look at people in their early 20s and the numbers are 10 times higher for people identifying as trans than people of my generation as someone in my early 40s. And this seems like the beginning of a world historic process that we don't know where it's going to lead. It's going to lead to something very different for human gender than what we currently understand. And I think currently it's the transphobes that seem most attuned to this world historic change that's happening. And they're sort of rightfully terrified that that the world of the future is going to be different than the world they lived in. Um, And we are at the only historical juncture where both of these generations are present, like this, this sort of rough decade. And so we are at this moment of being able to gather interviews to think about this historical, the, the, the historical process in the last few decades and think about the conjuncture of what's happening right now. And I think this is the period that people are going to look back and study gender and what happened to gender for centuries. And that gathering oral histories right now is a really crucial contribution to that. It's really fascinating to think about that from a historical standpoint and to think about how you could build a collection not knowing how it might be used in the future, but knowing that it actually will be used in the future. That's the hope. And if people want to figure out how they could support it, what would you recommend that they do? Uh, The Collective has a website, newyorkcitytransoralhistory.org. And uh, we can, anyone can donate uh, through that website. You can uh, write to us and we can send you clips or send you interviews. And then I have various ways that people can support me, a Patreon where I write about sort of political topics of trans life. Um, and yeah, those are a few things. The NYC Trans Oral History Project has really considered what's in its community's particular best interests, and that means they do many things differently, even if those actions run counter to how archives are supposed to be run. Right, Danielle. The Trans Oral History Project is critiquing institutions that don't take into account the lived realities of many trans folks, and they're going beyond that critique to create an alternative model by and for trans folks. I think such conscientious practices can inspire other organizations to consider adapting their archival structures in order to expand access in ways that will be meaningful to their own communities. So these kinds of creative, community-centric approaches represent the future of queer and trans archival work, I think. Next time, 
We'll be looking at initiatives to create LGBTQ plus inclusive curriculums in schools. Please check out our show notes to find links to the New York City Trans Oral History Project, more information about our guest, and other resources about LGBTQ plus oral history archives. As we close out this episode, here's one final clip from the Trans Oral History Project archive, an excerpt from an interview that Michelle O'Brien conducted in 2019 talking to B. Hawk Snipes. Thanks for tuning in. It's like you can't erase these things that have happened in our journey because they're there and they're documented. Some aren't, but a majority of them are. And they're, they're hidden somewhere under some rug or vault that people can't get to. And I think it's really, really important for projects like this um, for the New York Library to do because and because if if they didn't have resources like this, especially now, then who knows what the future would be? You know, who 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 will know my story if I don't record it, if I don't write it down, if I don't really get it out there for the world to see? Who will then know my story? Who will know the work that I've done to for people to live freely and for people to express themselves in the way that they see fit? Thanks for joining us for the second episode of Making Queer History Public. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play so you don't miss it. And let us know what you thought about this episode by tweeting at us at at ASHP underscore CML. Making Queer History Public is a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the CUNY Graduate Center, and it's made possible by funding from Humanities New York. This podcast was researched, written, and recorded by Danielle Bennett and Annie Volk, and edited, sound engineered, and produced by David Sheckle. Donna Thompson Ray is our production manager. Thanks to Bo Lancaster, Julian Hassan, Penny Bender, and the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning. Special thanks to our guest, Michelle O'Brien. Theme music by Julian Hassan. <laughs>